When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life and love and all things literary. Our guest today is Maggie Nelson. She's one of the most electrifying writers at work today. She writes poetry, nonfiction and criticism. She's the author of the book-length lyric essay Bluettes, Women, the New York School and Other True Abstractions, as well as The Red Parts, which was first published in 2007 and is being reissued this month by Grey Wolf. That book focuses on the aftermath of the 1969 murder of Nelson's aunt and the trial 36 years later of a suspect in the case. Um, next up, uh, we can't forget to mention The Argonauts, which is kind of a book that has taken... I feel like it had this slow build and it's finally reaching every kind of corner of the world. It's an account of Nelson's relationship with her fluidly gendered partner, the artist Harry Dodge, and her pregnancy with their child Iggy, and so many more things. She's also the author of several books of poetry, including Jane, A Murder, and a book of criticism, The Art of Cruelty. Um, Maggie's been awarded so many awards that I won't go into them, but you can find her bio on our website. Um, so the first thing is welcome Thank after you. that long introduction. Yeah. And I want to, I feel like you're known for being so precise and that your words are so um, yeah, specific that if I use a word in the wrong way, like say normal, <laughs> mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. not, you know, what is normal or can you call me out on it? Sure, yeah. Because that's My what specialty. this is for. And when... As in, as a teenager or in your twenties, did you find queer theory and find it as something that was so important for you to be a part of that conversation? You know, queer theory didn't really it it, it didn't exist with the kind of capital Q and T. You know, really until the I mean, until the eighties and into the nineties. So. Um, and when I was in college in the early 90s, there actually wasn't even a queer studies department at Wesleyan where I was in college. It hadn't. It didn't really, um, you know, you know, there was feminist theory and post-colonial theory and post-structuralist theory and Marxist theory and all, all, all kinds of other things. But queer theory was not, you know, it, it had a um, a road to legitimacy that you might see other disciplines like trans studies or disability studies or whatever um, coming into now. So it wasn't really on my radar screen, um, really in. I mean, it was on my radar screen, but it wasn't as a, as a as theory. It wasn't on my on my radar screen. I mean, um, and then, but I I studied with um, you know Eve Sedgwick, who people call the queen of queer theory. When I went to graduate school um, in the uh, late '90s, and and you know, I'm never. I don't really. I mean, I have a kind of. Uh, I don't know, this is a podcast, so you can't see my hands, but I have a kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm not like a head-on academic person, you know, so I don't, um, I've, I've, 
I got a PhD and I've been in theoretical classes and stuff, but I feel like I, I, I more do like a weave. Um, I don't really care about the fate of disciplines or mm-hmm. departments per se, you know, I, I care about particular readers or thinkers. So, um, yeah, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Kind of switching tacks a little, and we'll come back to the Argonauts. Um, the Red Parts is about the murder of your aunt. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about when you discovered that as a family? Um, I mean, as as a child, I mean, when mm-hmm. that was revealed to you as a f- kind of family secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm sure you guys probably feel like this too, but there are so many things that we blame our parents for, like that they didn't tell us the story yeah. <laughs> or they kept things secret or they or they told us all at once or whatever. Now that I'm a parent, I kind of think like, you know, you don't really like sit your three-year-old down and be like, there's something I got to tell you about what happened to your deceased aunt. You know, it's just mm-hmm. not like a, you know, like things might come out a little bit at a time like, oh, yes, you know, my mom might have said, I did used to have a sister. She's in that photograph. But, you know, now I kind of realize when I got into the murder later on in my life, um, you know, I realized why it wasn't really an appropriate uh, full topic to go yes. into. You know, it was really horrifying murder. I'm laughing, but you know, it was really horrifying murder, and and it was not really, you know, I don't think age appropriate for a long time to. I mean, it's also very lurid, like. It's unsolved. The guy might still be out there. It might have been part of this horrible serial killing where all the girls died more horribly even than your aunt. You know, there were just so many aspects of it that were not really, um, you know. But I, but I did know my mom had a sister. I mean, her family home in Michigan was full of pictures of her brother and her sister and herself, and I knew that she had been murdered. Um, probably at first knew she died, and then later probably knew she'd mm. been murdered. And then I, I, I described in the red parts um, that my mother had a, you know, there were, there were a few true crime books that were written about those murders, and one of them called The Michigan Murders she always had in her office. And I probably around when I was, you know, 12 or 13, I started taking it down and reading it. <laughs> I mean, it was a horrifying book. Um, but I, you know, there were seven girls in The Michigan Murders, and I, through some, you know, not-so-difficult detective work, figured out that the chapter on Jeannie Holder was about Jane Mixer, <laughs> who had been my aunt. And then, and then, you know, so by my early 20s, I think I was, um, Jane died when she was 23. And, you know, I'm sure we all have this in our lives, but like, you know, like Jane died when she was 23 and my father died when he was 40, you know, so both those ages for me were kind of like, am I going to make it, you know, past 23, (laughs) am I going to make it past 40? Now I'm 43, so, you know, the world's open. Um, But, uh, I think I, what I realized when I was in my early 20s was it wasn't just, the age marker of 23, it was also that I related to the idea of, like, being snuffed out (laughs) right when you were on the verge of kind of wanting to become who you might want to be, and that seemed very sad (laughs) and very perilous to me, and I think also very twinned to how a lot of people feel at that age, which is, like, you don't really see how to become who you want to be anyway. <laughs> and so the idea of it just kind of falling apart seems likely. Um, so, well, there's an, the Edgar Allan Poe quote mm-hmm. that you have in the book. I think it's, um, you might remember it more than the I do. The death of a beautiful woman is the most beautiful yeah. thing. Not I remember yeah. reading that yeah. and just feeling ill going, yeah. is <clears> this 
also part of our culture that we believe yeah. that that is like it's perverse and yeah. yet so much of the culture like tv shows and yeah. violence against women it's all yeah. surrounding that idea yeah and as soon as i read that it just hit me of how um you also talk about going to fit the movies with your mom mm-hmm. and how often you couldn't sit through them and you, you were surprised at how often right. these tropes come right. up yeah. that yeah. I wondered how you know when it happens close to you in real life mm-hmm. how do you then deal with a culture mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. using it for entertainment yeah well I think it I mean I don't I regret that Jane died but I don't regret that um what I describe in the red parts is my mom not being able to go to movies where women are either abducted or held at gunpoint um, or killed. Um, and I say, if that's your litmus test for sitting through a movie, it quickly will reveal itself that you're going to have a <laughs> you're going to have a hard time with most movies. Yeah. Maybe you know even ones that you don't think are going to be that way. So I think what I don't regret is I don't regret growing up with that sensitivity because it made me, I think. Um, alert not only towards you know what we all know to be a kind of riveted sense of violence against young women, but also how much that that how much narrative work it does to have like like in almost every movie like the premise of the thing the action begins because the woman is killed and you know it became a very uh, whether it's you know. You know, you learn in school the Trojan War started because, you know, of the abduction or a abduction be, you know, running off of Helen or whatever. But, you know, you learn these kind of like that women don't matter, but that somehow they're, they're, the regulation of their lives, deaths, or bodies, you know, um, somehow is also integral <laughs> to the actions of men. And I think that that was a very interesting narrative lesson to, to be keyed in on, you know. I'm just wondering if you can tell us about having written a book of poetry, mm-hmm. Jane, a murder, mm-hmm. about this and how it did it consume you mm-hmm. in a way that you had to write mm-hmm. this. And then can you tell us mm-hmm. about then how the second phase of this yeah. came to be? They were they were polar opposite experiences because Jane and I worked on for years as like my own pet little project that was hard for me to work on because I was discovering so much information about my aunt and because Jane, um, you know, I embroiled my mother in my research by asking her if she wanted to go back to where her sister's body was found. I mean, who wants to go (laughs) to these places and, you know, and to go down this road, no one knows where she died, but where they knew other girls had died. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I told my mom, I'm going on this trip. Do you want to come? And she surprised me by saying, okay, let's go. You know, so we're just driving around together in a rental car down old, you know, roads in Michigan looking for markers of like, oh, I think this is where, you know, you know, girl number four was found. You know, it was a very weird trip um, with my mom. But, but there was a lot of um, kind of research and catharsis and all kinds of things going on with Jane over about eight eight year period. And then, you know, when her case was reopened, which was so weird as a twist because it was so clear to me while writing Jane that I was writing about a dead, cold case that no one cared about. And then when, you know, when suddenly it was reopened and it was kind of like, you know, my literary life was folded over onto 
the life of the Michigan State Police. When was it a month before the publishing? Yeah, and it it was also like my worst nightmare because no one knew who'd murdered my aunt and then to be told, I mean, I'll never understand to this day why they did this, but but they told us before they arrested the suspect that they were going to make an arrest soon. So there was also this weird interim period where I was like, in, you know, like my worst fear was like this book will come out there and then like the person who did it will be out there. And then I was like, oh, actually, <laughs> that is actually what is. Um, and yes. I was like, can you please arrest him like tomorrow? Because I was like, this is making me a little Yeah, nervous. why do you have to wait? Yeah, I don't know. So they, um, but then the, the reason why they were very opposite projects was because the red parts, I felt, oh, there's a lot of rage in that book. I think I was really, um, there's something really different about as a writer kind of coming up with your own desire to write a story and then just documenting something that's happening in the world and like people call it like if you read about any murder trial or any trial having to do with you know where there are victims people will say like they'll they'll act as if the victims or the surviving family are kind of one side and the perpetrator is on the other, but, you know, it's it's the state, you know, or, like, the DA or whatever, like, they're going to do what, like, he would have gone to trial whether we'd gone there or not. You know, the state was bringing him to trial, not, not our family, mm-hmm. which is important, you know. I mean, thank goodness that we don't, you know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a vigilante system, but I think that... Um, so I, the red parts was like, it was like a train that was going, the station, I mean, like the train had left the station, the arrest was being made, the trial was scheduled. The only question was like, was I going to continue to take part in this story or was I going to bag off and say I'd had enough, you know, of the topic? But I just, at that point, you know, it felt like, well, you know. You're in so far. Yeah, and also I was very interested in notions of, Justice, which that book parses through a fair amount, you know, in terms of what it, we, we use the word all the time. And, and yet, you know, Jane has an award in her name at, at University of Michigan. It's the Jane Mixer Award for Social Justice. And that social justice is really not the same as criminal justice. And I was really interested in, you know, I'm much more interested in social justice than criminal justice, but I was very interested. But the word just kind of floats in between the two realms as if they have any real connection at all. So I was interested in going to the trial and and enmeshing in what criminal justice looks like because I'd never been to a trial, um, you know, three weeks every day, you know, just seeing how it went, you know. I was very interested in um, how you talk about having murder mind Mm -hmm. and then versus the suicide mind and can you talk about how did they how did you differentiate them or Mm -hmm. how did you did one lead to the other and how are you able to pull yourself out because when I was reading the book Mm -hmm. I had to be really careful because I would Mm -hmm. start to shake and because and this is why I thought this might happen because I'd forgotten and I was in Los Angeles when I was mm-hmm. finishing reading it. And I knew a girl that had been murdered mm. about a few blocks from my house who mm. I worked with. Mm-hmm. 
And it happened at a period where I was alone in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I'd made a choice to be there mm-hmm. myself. And because I knew my parents would worry so much, I never told them. Mm-hmm. And it was very close to us. Mm-hmm. Like It was all at the restaurant we worked at. Mm-hmm. So we all mm-hmm. were asked, you know, where we'd been. And then mm-hmm. there was a period where they thought that we could all be we didn't, we had to be very careful. Mm-hmm. We had to have people mm-hmm. walk us to our apartments mm-hmm. and things. What uh, neighborhood were you, were you in? In Santa Monica. Uh-huh. And it was as if I had completely put that in a box mm-hmm. and I hadn't, I had to put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had to leave working there. I mm-hmm. couldn't kind of mm-hmm. bear it. Mm-hmm. And so I started reading your book and I started shaking in this oh, strange wow. way and having oh, all these wow. feelings back, oh, yeah. remembering just how hideous yeah. and this time was, but also how ever since I haven't been able to watch films mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. I don't read thrillers mm-hmm. and I get so mm-hmm. sickened by mm-hmm. the culture of mm-hmm. enjoyment around this. Mm-hmm. So when... You talked about that murder mind and the mm-hmm. dreams you had, and yeah. I'm so far removed from yeah. your experience or anyone yeah, yeah, else's yeah. experience, but I thought it's so powerful. Yeah. I mean, I'm far removed from it as well now, and what's funny about the red parts coming out 10 years later is you know, I reread it the other day to prepare for things like this, and I was like, this book is really dark. <laughs> it's really at the, t- dark. At the time, everyone kept telling me it was really dark, and I was like, oh, you know, each his own or whatever, you know? <laughs> and then I read it now and I think like I think that there is um, you know we all walk around every day like we all seem intact and we all our skin's intact and you know and I think what can happen is that when you I mean this happens with illness or it happens with a lot of things mm. but you know you get a passport to a different kingdom and in the other kingdom people are wildly violated you know your safety feels utterly precarious you know you're if, you know via illness you know you feel you know you've you're suddenly a chemo patient or something whereas the day before you were you know mm-hmm. doing your podcast I mean there are just these things that are like you know we we get these passports to different arenas and I think that you know my passport to the violation arena got very well stamped during that time and you know I haven't I don't live in murder mind there's a suicide mind thankfully right now but I think that you know, to work on those issues, you know, you, you know, you, you do have to become, I mean, I think not only intimate with the realities and not just the spectacle mm-hmm. of, of physical precarity and the reality of, you know, violence, but also, um, and the reason why there's a kind of bleed between like murder mind Suicide Mind, and then also this chapter in the Red Parts about, um, oh, his name is escaping me now, but he was a man who was on trial the year I was writing that book in, in Connecticut for serial murder, and, and he was describing, there's a moment in the book where I quote oh, him from yes. the paper where he's talking about, you know, when you pass song in your head all the time, and you just can't get a tune now, and he said, now replace that tune with images of mutilated women, and you have an idea of what my mind is like, and I said in the book, his description shocked me. It was a very good description of murder mind. And I, I think that there was a kind of, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know how to state this without, I'm not actually saying that, that I'm not actually saying that women are any, 
not, and I want to overstate the connection between like, you know, people who might do harm and people who might be victims of it. But I do think that, um, I do think that one of the reasons why the book interfaces with, you know, whether it's James Elroy's My Dark Places mm -hmm. or other thing, other, other books that could be characterized as kind of misogynistic explorations, you know, from a male point of view about violence are that, um, it's kind of the same reason why a lot of, you know, feminists I know are not like horrified by whatever, Henry Miller or Bukowski, whatever, you're like, we're all talking about the same thing, at least, you know what I mean? Like, we're, 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 we're describing the extremity of this particular world that we, you know, have been forced to share by the overlap of, you know, of, of misogyny or violence. So I think that that book was very squarely um, in that place. And the suicide mind part is kind of, um, I think, uh, I don't think, I mean, I wrote about this more in The Art of Cruelty than in, than in this book, but The Art of Cruelty has a chapter about women as enactors of violence, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Abu Ghraib photos that came out, um, and Lindy England and that whole mm. um, part, and how a lot of feminists at that time were kind of saying, like, oh my gosh, like, how horrible. Like, as soon as I saw Lindy England next to that pyramid of Iraqi bodies, I knew women were just as bad as men or something, and and, and I felt like it was very important to kind of, um, like, on the one hand, acknowledge, you know, the role that aggression or violence and sadism or whatever can play with women while also still confronting the fact that, like, Lindy England was part of a patriarchal institution, institution, you know, yeah. and, the, and, and that judging how people behave, men or women or anything in between, within these institutions is not the same as, like, assigning to a gender what they have a propensity for because the fact remains as the red part on with the stats are, but you know, 98% of violent crime, you know, or homicide are committed by, you know, rape is committed by men in this country. So it was kind of like, I felt like I was, um, but the point about suicide mine I was going to make was just that, you know, I do think that statistically speaking at any rate, and I could be wrong. So maybe someone can be happy to call me out on this, but you know, there, but that women do, um, partake in aggression, but often it's against their own bodies um, mm. rather than those of others. And I think that the suicide mind in part was um, a, an attempt to kind of talk about, like, I have no desire and have never had any desire to strike out <laughs> at any other human, really. I mean, within reason, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not like part of my Rolodex of go-to feelings. Um, but, you know, I and you know, many people I know have, you know, had many desires to disappear or harm themselves in some way. So uh, the book attempts to pay homage to that state, you know. Mm. I guess to switch tacks a bit <laughs> to, to, yeah. to, to love and yeah. happiness and beautiful babies and family. <laughs> um, I love, you know, the beginning of the Argonauts. I laughed a lot because oh, I, I thought... Um, I loved kind of your calling yourself out on how you thought of like, oh, those breeders mm -hmm. over there, like how annoying, you know, and how kind of women who have babies can be smug or pregnant women. It is all the feelings that kind of come up a lot. Um, but I'm wondering how was it meeting Harry that shifted that for you or was it a slow was it a, something that was kind of simmering in you, a, a softening towards an idea of a child? Yeah, you know, I don't think... No, I wanted to have a baby before I met Harry. Um, you know, I think that, like a lot of people, 
I hadn't, whatever, I didn't really think about having babies very much. It just wasn't something that was, like, on my mind, you know. But, like, a lot of people, you know, like, after 35 or something, you're kind of like, oh, shit. Like, I hear, I hear, I hear now is turning into the time. Like, and I think it was also a, a right of, um, I think the feminism I had as a younger woman thought that, um, you know, the whole medical establishment talking about, like, women over 35 as having, like, geriatric uteruses and stuff I thought was all, you know, appalling. I mean, it is all appalling. But I think what I realized also as I got older was that, um, was that there could also be a feminism <laughs> which was, uh, c- could be more brave about looking squarely at just physical statistics about difficulty getting pregnant, you know, and I think that, um, and I think that I just, I think I just kind of, even though I'd never thought about having babies, I think that, like a lot of things in life, it was probably in the back of my, like a lot of people just thought, oh yeah, I'll do that later, you know, so then when it seemed like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to do that now, um, so I think, you know, when I met Harry, that was, you know, he already had a kid, and um, I think that for people who don't have children, they talk a lot about, like, like, people told me a lot when I was pregnant or before, they're like, you know, people would be like, oh, the gulf between having a kid and not having a kid is like, you know, the Grand Canyon, you know, everything will change in your life. Do you, think, do you guys have any kids? No. Nah. Like, but people just, it was like, it was like the opposite. Of, like, I think people used to say that, like, everyone would be like, oh, everything will be, be the great. same. Yeah, it'll be the same. But, like, now I feel like there's this new meme on the street yeah. that it's just, like, you know, just, like, brutal. And it's just like you're going to enter hell and you'll never sleep again and all this stuff. And I think... Um, taking up with someone who already had a kid and who was just continuing to live life and did not seem to be, you know, physically maimed or something by the experience, I think was also, um, I just kind of, I think, I think he was more, oh yeah, you know, we could do that again. And I was like, okay, great. I think I'd like to. And I, and I don't, I think that even though I think it's been a feminist, um, intent to, uh, make sure that women don't go into the experience of maternity with, you know, rose-colored glasses and, like, feel like there's something wrong with them if they want to kill their baby sometimes or if mm-hmm. they, you know, don't enjoy being pregnant or whatever. I, I think for me, I kind of had the opposite experience where I felt a little bit as though I'd been um, really inundated <laughs> with negativity and that the feelings of... Um, Wow, you're like, this is lovely. Like, well, parts yeah. I mean, of it, I of think course. that when people would say before that, like, oh, they're just really having a good time with their baby, I'd be like, yeah, right, that's what you have to say. Yeah. Because, you know, the man's putting you up to it. But, like, <laughs> you know, I've found my, you know. You're like, all liars. You yeah, know. but I think that I thought in the Argonauts, it, I, don't, I didn't want to be one of the smug readers, and I certainly don't think my experience extends <clears throat> to anybody else, but I think I did want to um, offer up I mean, the problem of that book was kind of like, can you write about happiness or a certain kind of delight without being smug or without underscoring norms that seemed to me toxic? So that seemed like an interesting writing problem. I think you did it. Oh, great. Fantastic. The end, I just, oh, it's beautiful. Um, I mean, I think also because in queer circles, there's been all this, um, there are 
affects like humiliation, shame, failure that have attended homosexuality in the past because of its historical, like, you would be shamed if you tried to mm-hmm. fuck somebody. Can I say that in the podcast? Yeah. Like, you know, in the bathroom or whatever. Like, you know, like, so you would be shamed if you, you know, like, if you were a lesbian, you know, your life would be, you know, just, you know, an embarrassment of hell and you'd be cast out of all circles. Like, there, so a lot of queer theory kind of at its inception set out to, um, kind of turn those negative affects into a badge, you know? So there's a lot of work on queer shame and queer failure, whatever. But there's also been a kind of, um, you know, uh, as a kind of backlash or respondent to that work about, you know, what is queer optimism? Like, what is, you know, what what is queer pleasure? <clears throat> and I think that I thought of this book as maybe more in conversation with that the the those questions about mm-hmm. optimism or delight because I, and I, the reading of the book I don't like <laughs> is like I think some people have been like oh it turns out these experiences like marriage or having a baby like and being normal like do make you happy and so the book is about how to contend with how to be happy in normalcy when you've had a life before that wasn't normal and like that that reading really bothers me because I feel like the book is really hopefully uh trying to chart a different path altogether and 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 is much more skeptical you know includes scenes of a marriage or of a birth but they're but they're written hopefully I to me anyway in such a way that kind of see all sides of the situation They they don't flop onto a kind of Who's that guy who, right, who does those movies? Like, this is 40. Oh, like, oh. Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow. They're, like, they're not like a... Like, the trope of all rom-coms is like, once you were wild and crazy and lived a great promiscuous yeah, sexual now, life, and now you're saddled with an ergo and well, a Well, and they're almost and, like, you, know, like, Mr. A Pussy Whips. You know? Yeah, and it's exactly. like, okay, what is this all about? Yeah, and all that, especially in queer circles, is just, like, not... Um, you don't lose your you know, promiscuous, roving, you know, masculinity or slutdom because you have a baby stroke. <laughs> so I think, like, it, it's like a paradigm that I feel like some people have put on the book that, to me, is very alien. You know? Yeah. That's I'm fine. glad yeah. we got to say exactly <laughs> what it isn't, everyone. <laughs> I um, mean, but everyone's free to interpret things the way they yeah. want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just on, like, the romantic front, because that's what I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you first meet Harry and then how, I mean, what what was the process of falling in love like with someone who is fluidly gendered? I mean, and I'm, I'm before you answer, I'm one, I mean, it's probably, it's no different than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But also, could you explain what fluidly gendered means so we can get it right, you know, for, for people who don't know? Well, um, I mean, I think both Harry and myself and a lot of other people we know are not really of the opinion that there are, like, cis people and trans people and, like, whatever. I mean, there are are people who are trans people who do believe that or, you know, but I think that that, um, uh, the book is very insistent on not, like, joining up with pre- made groups and just Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word just being who you are you know and for better or for worse you know harry um harry's gender is his own gender it's Mm -hmm. uh it's he doesn't 
the media and talking about this book very freely calls him trans and that's fine but if you read the book carefully that's not a word that Harry ever uses for himself not because he doesn't like it he just doesn't identify with it per se right. you know if you the, the, as the book says if you're using shorthand it's just that you know trans usually implies um, doesn't always but it can imply in the kind of new narrative a kind of movement from one place to another you know M to F or F to M and um, Harry's happy to have um, you know a both genders flicker within him. Mm. Well, I loved a quote that somewhere that he sometimes says, I'm not on a road to anywhere. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not, yeah. I think not in our culture, yeah. we're always like, yeah. well, where are we going? Yeah. It's like, why, yeah. why can't we live within yeah. ambiguities and just be? I think what people also don't necessarily know, um, I mean, there's a lot of diversity tons of diversity, as diverse as there are human beings, you know, in, in both trans communities of trans women and trans guys. But I would also say that, like, um, having more intimacy with what you might call, you know, trans guys or F to M is like, I think that people don't understand that, you know, there's a lot of um, continuum between butches and people who might uh, want to have top surgery or different things that like that um, there are butches who want to stay butches they just don't want to have breasts there are people who actually want to transition to being men there are just all these different people so I think that like the surgeries and the hormones um, for some people they're about passing and about becoming something else but for a lot of people they're just about um, tinkering with uh, having a body that presents in a way that feels, feels more good. normal, but that yeah. whether or not that means it's a male body, it really is not the case. So right. at least not for Harry's case. Some people it is. It you know it really depends on the person. So, but I think that you know whether you want to call it gender queer, whatever gender hacking, whatever you want to call it. But there are there are a lot of people. Um, I mean, the state in most countries has demanded that in order to get access to um, hormones or surgery that you have to declare that you uh, want a set, you're having a sex change, you know. And if you go to, like, if you're at TSA and people are giving you a hard time in the line or whatever, the fastest way to get out of your conundrum is to say, I'm in the middle of a sex change, can I please go through? Um, those... Right. Why the, can't he those, just be those? Um, those strictures produce. I mean, we're all people who are influenced by what we're being told we need to do. So, like, we don't live right now in a society in which um, we really like the full-fledged diversity of experience is. You know, being when it gets channeled by the state into these boxes, it makes it more difficult just to like, so there are maybe circumstances where Harry might be like, I'm having a sex change, can I please go through TSA? It doesn't mean that he believes it. Right, <laughs> it just, it's just, let's so, get on with yeah, it. Let's get on with it. So I think that it's really hard to, for genderqueer people to, um, like people will often say, but you call him he in this book, and I'm like, you know, he doesn't like Z or they or whatever, and you got to choose a pronoun. It's like, just yeah. just give up the like, like why are you trying to like, you know, well, if he, you know, if he didn't want to be passing his mail, why would he? It's just, you know, it's just like, what, what is it to you that you need to get on his choices? Like, I don't know, it just is, um, I, I think it's just people don't quite understand who aren't living it, how um, every day there are so many demands upon you to, you know, 
you're at the restaurant, you know, ladies, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, whatever. It's just this constant, constant. thing. And, and, and it, would, it would really just help if people just backed off <laughs> gender yeah. a little bit, you know. And then we could see, you know, people get to be themselves a little more. Since the book has come out, do you think it has started to change the conversation? It feels like in the literary community mm-hmm. it has or, I mean, hopefully it'll have an even wider yeah. reach. Well, I guess I do. I want to say one thing, which I don't get a chance to say often enough yes, in fast go. interviews, but which is just that, like, you know, I'm really wary of also this trope that I think I think a lot of like gender non-normative people still make people uncomfortable, and that they, if people want to say like, you know, like I'm not an ambassador yeah. for the non-normatively gendered. I'm a you know cisgendered female person who I don't intend to speak for any community and certainly not for Harry and certainly not for anybody else. So I think that um, I am happy if the book... I, I think that there are a lot of people who I've heard from who feel either like their families feel represented or they feel like there's more nuance in its description of gender they feel happy about or they feel like, um, but, you know, I don't, it's not a, um, it only speaks from my position. But I do think that one of the positions that that is is also, um, you know, the media really likes to put like feminism and trans things on these opposite like warring tracks right now and I think it's really um, um, or it likes to put you know the death of you know the death of a certain kind of queer like the kind that was anti-breeder or whatever pitting against again the kind of like you know usually emasculated um because lesbians have having, been having babies forever. But, like, you know, notion of, like, the queer who, like, has left the bathhouse and is now saddled with the bottle or whatever. And I think that the book was meant to really just stand in between a lot of those binaries, you know, not just about gender, but about, like, feminism and queer theory work together. They don't have to work apart. You know, like, you, you know, all, all these kinds yeah. of um, well, it places. It feels like so. it's, like, just taking away all <clears throat> those boxes that we're meant yeah. to tick to categorize who we are, why we are. Yeah. And all the categories do is, I mean, they were kind of designed to make things fast and efficient, yeah. right, so we can make instant judgments about this yeah. or that. There's a book by someone, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, so forgive me, but there's a book, I think her name's Lisa Diamond, and it's about sexual fluidity, but it was really interesting in that she did like a, a many-year study with people, all women, um, about if they identified as gay or straight or as bisexual, whatever. But it was, like, over many years, you know, like 20 years or something. And what was so interesting was that there were kind of, like, little deviances along the way. Mm. People like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't identify as a lesbian anymore. That was that, whatever. But that for the most part, the if you looked at, like, the full tracking where everybody moved to, for the most part, over the years was towards an irritation with labels. <laughs> you know, like, that yes. was, like, so by the end, you were like, uh, why are you still coming back to yeah. me to ask me what I, like, I've just, you know, I'm done with this now. And I think that... Most people feel that way, really. Hopefully, the we'll the get day. there as a culture too. Yeah, like, so, oh, yeah. can't we all just be? Yeah, which doesn't mean you know you can't have fun with labels. Like, it's fun. People can be like, oh, I'm a Pisces who really likes <laughs> you know bears or whatever yeah. your thing is that you're into. But it doesn't mean that like you'll always 
like bears, you know, maybe your tinder tastes or growler or whatever are going to like change. And if you made me, some people's tastes in life or identities remain very constant, but many people's don't. Mm. So, yeah. well, and also why that? What a what a life if you never if you stay right. fixed. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's why I think all your work is so interesting because it's it feels fluid. Like we, yeah. you're generous enough to do the work to write about it yeah. in such a beautiful way that we get to go on this journey with you mm-hmm. and it is um it's like water there's a part in the red parts where you talk about your mum getting married for the third time and i'll just read read what you <laughs> wrote cuz i loved it so much um poor mom but this time no this is Not a good bit the third time but for me <laughs> this is a good it. one But this time, as far as I can tell, Mm -hmm. my mother has not made her husband her desire incarnate, though she does love him very much. And for his part, so as far as I can tell, he doesn't try to talk her out of her self-depreciation, nor does he abet it. He simply loves her. I'm learning from him. Mm -hmm. I feel that, could you explain a little bit what you mean by she by the fact that she isn't making him mm-hmm. her desire incarnate. It's one of those things mm-hmm. where you read an amazing poem mm-hmm. and you get a sense that you know what it means yeah. and you're like, yeah, I got this. And you're like, I kind of have no mm-hmm. fucking idea, but I know yeah, it's yeah. true. You know, and then you go, then I have to go back and do the work well, you know, to make it make sense. You know sense. when like, you're having a breakup and, and you feel like all love is lost and all your friends tell you, they're like, no, love is bigger than that person, you know? Like, and you're like, no, it's not actually. And I, I remember when I was writing Bluets, like, and uh, I didn't, I don't think this quote made it in there, but um, I was very taken with, you know, Sylvia Plath, who we all know things didn't go so well <laughs> post-breakup with Ted Hughes for her. But, you know, there's this, um, in one biography of her, a friend says that she says to the friend, you know, you know, you don't understand, like, Ted Hughes was my whole heart, and when you give your whole heart, you never get it back, you know, and I was telling a friend this, going, like, I feel like that, too, about this breakup, and and, and she just looked at me, and she was like, start reading a different, start reading different books, <laughs> you know, just, like, get, get a yeah. different, like, perspective, like, because, like, that feeling is, like, it's a real feeling, but if you keep playing that script, like, you never get it back, you know, it was my whole heart, like, things aren't, like, you know, you're just not gonna, it's not gonna go (laughs) well, and I think I'd watched my mom do that with the breakup of her second marriage, you know, I think she really did feel like, um, she had, because she'd left my father for this man who she'd fallen very much in love with, and when that, I think that he always represented to her, like, my father she grew up with, they were high school sweethearts, and that was kind of, like, the dutiful arrangement, so when she, fell in love with that my stepfather she always told me all through growing up like that he was her chance at love you know so when it didn't work you know her narrative was I took my big chance at love you know and 20 years later it didn't work and therefore I have you know it doesn't work you know and it it seemed like kind of the plath thing where I was like this is not this is not gonna go well like because it wasn't just like saying it a few times it was like you know a deep belief and I and I think that um you know when she met her third husband the narrative had just you know she started reading a different book like that wasn't the narrative it mm-hmm. wasn't like he was a knight in shining armor or he was her desire incarnate or he was her her last chance at love it was just like as she always told me like when you get married you know when you're in your 60s you're kind of choosing who you want to go out with which is a really yeah, different perspective it is so different, than isn't it, it is to choose. Like it's just a different kind of a feeling, and so I think that um, you know, 
it's kind of like life has become too short to be like, you're my desire incarnate and I'll lose my heart. It's like, there are other things that are involved. Like, you know, are you going to stick around when I get the bad diagnosis or like, you know, like whatever it is that you're kind of angling towards. And so I think that, um, and I just feel like um, instead of being trapped with him in a kind of like self-abasement, not self-abasement, they're just very concerned with, you know, having a good daily life together mm. and, and that was it's been sweet to see you know yeah <laughs> it's like brain power to keep up with you maggie but the best kind oh that's good because i best even kind. had a lot of coffee so i'm feeling a little bit dim you know oh gosh no <laughs> i don't know if i could have handled you on more caffeine okay great i won't have any more okay, <laughs> thank yeah. you so My much for more about this interview and about lit up in general visit us at thelitupshow.com Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.